Well, good morning. Good to have you here this morning, and uh, now I need you to be a little more alive and well in this second service than people in the first service, okay? Uh, first service, spring ahead Sunday, pretty difficult, all right? So we ought to just applaud. In fact, clap for the people that were here, okay? Give them a hand. <clears throat> uh, you know, that was pathetic and sparse and actually means that you've lost an hour of sleep too. Um, yeah, it was, uh, they, were, they were still kind of getting the blood circulating, and uh, so I hope you're past that, um, because even if, you know, we have actually lost an hour, it's still 10.30, so most of you, by tomorrow morning at 10.30, you will have been rock and rolling for hours. So I hope you're with it and alert and ready to go, and uh, we are excited that today we're starting a new series called Who's Your One? New series, Who's Your One? And for the next few weeks, we are going to be concentrating in this area of study. We have, uh, we have been dealing with, for the past few weeks, actually the first part of the year, we have been talking about, um, well, ourselves. <laughs> I mean, we've been talking about what, what can we do to make this year a better year, bigger year? What can we make sure 2020 is better than 2019? We, we've been talking about the fact that God loves us, that God has a plan for us, um, that, that, that God's love encompasses all of who we are, that he wants to be a part of every aspect of our life. Uh, we've, just, we've been revolving the messages around us and ourselves, and that's good. And that's encouraging. And we want to keep that theme going throughout the year. We want everybody, whoever comes in here, to know that God loves them, that he has a plan for their life, and have an encouraging message for every person that walks through those doors. However, as part of God's plan for our lives, he wants to make sure that everyone else knows that he loves them and that he has a plan for them as well. And... He's chosen us to make sure they know that. He's chosen all of us. He, he's given to us more than just privilege. He's given to us some responsibility. And for the next few weeks, we want to kind of zero in on that responsibility and talk about what it truly means to not only know God's love, but to allow that love to funnel through us to a world that needs to know that God is love. If I mention the word, uh, I, I, I just want you to kind of conjure up some, some mental images here, okay? If I mention the word politician to you, something comes to mind, okay? Now, for each of you, it might be something different, might be a certain figure, certain person in politics, might be a party, might be something you've heard on TV. But when I mention the word politician, boom, something comes to mind. If I mention the word doctor, Something's coming to your mind. For some of you, maybe it's something you've seen this week. You've seen too many doctors on TV, right? Some of you, it might be the doctor that you just recently saw. For some of you, your personal doctor or a doctor you know. If I went mention that word, something comes to your mind. If I mention to you college football fan, what comes to mind? For some of you, it's a person, the person you're sitting next to, right? For some of you, it's the image of something you saw on TV, guy had his face all painted up with the colors of his school, you know, his chest is all painted, and he's, 
That's what you think of. When we, when we hear different words, we think of different connotations. Different images come to mind. Here's one, Christian. When I say the word Christian, what comes to mind? And the truth is that in even this auditorium, the images that come to mind, the definition that comes to mind is probably pretty varied. But here's an interesting thing that maybe you're not aware of. If you were to type in the word Christian into, let's say, your Google search bar, and you just Google Christian, in about less than three seconds, you're going to get approximately 1.8 billion opportunities to look it up. There's 1.8 billion references to Christian. However, some of you have the Bible on your phone. You've got that U version. If you were to go to that Bible and you were to have like a search so that you could search for the words, maybe some of you have what's called a concordance, the book that you can actually go through and look through. And... But if you had the opportunity to look up the word Christian, you'd only find it three times. Three references to the word Christian. And, and here's the interesting thing. When you find it used, it's never used by those who were considered to be Christians. It was only used to describe those people by folks outside of the church by people who were not Christ followers, they described Christ followers as Christians. Wasn't necessarily a, it wasn't necessarily a good term. They weren't necessarily doing it to compliment them. When I was uh, in school, uh, in elementary school and middle school, that day, there was a TV program on called Happy Days. Any of you remember that? There was a TV show that kind of revolved around uh, the 50s, you know, and on that show was a guy called the Fonz, okay? Arthur Fonzarelli. Hey. I mean, he was the cool one. He epitomized coolness on Happy Days, and actually, for a whole generation of kids that grew up watching that show, the Fonz was cool. In fact, I remember when I grew up and I became an adult, and I actually heard Henry Winkler who played the Fonz, when I actually heard him talk for the first time, I was so disappointed. I'm like, wait, you don't sound like that. You're much cooler than that voice. Well, that was a character he played, but he was the epitome of coolness on Happy Days. There were other characters on Happy Days, and they were called nerds, okay? So that became a term when I was in school, and sometimes... Me and my friends would be called nerds. So we came up with a term for nerd. If somebody called us a nerd, we turned nerd around, and if you spelled it backwards, it was dren. So if they called us a nerd, we called them a dren, which just proved that we were nerds. Yeah, pretty much. <clears throat> but, but here's the deal. Potsy Weber did not one day decide I would like to be called a nerd. 
That was a term given to him by other people. He didn't want to be a nerd. He was just, that's kind of the way it is with Christian. It wasn't necessarily the word they chose for themselves. It was a word chosen by others given to them. Christian. Christian. And yet it's the word that most people use today to describe, well, you. (laughs) But it's only used three times in God's word. Now, there is another word that's used, and this word, in fact, is used nearly 300 times, and that's the word disciple. Disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ, and is it the same as being a Christian? We want to zero in on that today for just a few moments. And the scripture that I want you to go to, if you have your Bible or you want to turn to it, is Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 18. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, and this is what it says. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Say that word, fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Let let me give you a little bit of historical background and context. In this time period when Jesus is around, all Jewish boys, all Hebrew boys went to a school that was called the Torah school. And they started going there when they were age five. So all little boys went to Torah school at age five and learned the first few books of the Old Testament. They learned that historical background. They learned about God. They learned how he had led the Israelites and how he had brought them out of Egypt and all of that kind of thing. And this started when they were age five. By the time they were 10, if they were good enough, qualified enough, excelled enough, learned enough, if they were just kind of, it was in their wheelhouse, then they would keep going. They would continue on in school and learn more about the Old Testament and cover the rest of Old Testament scripture. If, however, at age 10, the teachers were like, you know, maybe it'd be best if you did something different. Then by age 10, they went back to their homes, education was over, and they would follow in basically the family business. It's kind of like I took algebra one in my freshman year of high school, and then when I went to register for my classes for my sophomore year of high school, there was a little check mark by the teacher if you were to pursue algebra two. And I noticed there was no check mark by my name. And she was kind of like, yeah, maybe you should go into business math. Thus went my doctoral career. 
right down the tubes. If you're at age 10 and they don't feel like you should move on, you're the B team. Head on back and just kind of follow in the family trade. But if you keep going, then for the next seven years, you're going to continue your education. So from about the age of five to the age of 17, kind of like our educational system today, they would be in school being instructed, learning how to excel, getting experience. At the age of 17, if they determined they wanted to continue this course of action, they would seek out a rabbi. They would find a rabbi that they admired. Find a rabbi, maybe one even that had been part of the teaching process, and they really liked him. And they had learned a lot. And these 17-year-old young men, they would seek out a rabbi, and they would actually go and basically sit at his feet. And by sitting at his feet while he was teaching, the rabbi would know that this young man has chosen to be an apprentice under me. However, the rabbi would then put him through a series of questions and tests to see if he was rabbi material, if all of this education had met the muster, and if it would meet up to the expectations that were given to them. And so they would take them through this whole process, and he would test him, and he would question him. And if he passed those tests, and if he answered those questions correctly, then the rabbi would say to the young man, the young apprentice, you can be my disciple. And that was the word that they actually used. You can be my disciple. And for the next few years, this young man would follow the rabbi, not only hearing what he said, not only learning, not only gaining in teaching experience, but actually doing what he did. And they would then become the next set of rabbis, Pharisees, Sadducees. It was from this group of young men that that higher echelon of Jewish society was chosen. When the rabbis chose them, they were not just choosing them based on their excellence in education. They were choosing them because after they had run them through these questions and tests, they had decided that this young disciple can become like me. And so for several years, the young disciple would follow and imitate in every way. And the goal of the disciple was to become like that rabbi. So there's a few things here in this passage that I just want to point out to you in this kind of introduction to this series. Here's the first thing. If you're taking notes, write this down. First of all, he looks. Jesus looks. He doesn't choose ability, but he will use availability. He doesn't choose ability, but he will use availability. Notice, as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. In Matthew chapter 4, and you read this again in Luke, you find it in the Gospel of Luke, even a little bit more of an elaborate presentation of this 
choosing, of, of God looking for his first disciples. These are the first guys that he is looking to follow him. And it says that as this new young rabbi is walking along, he comes across some fishermen, which means what? What that means is they were part of the B team. Say B team. B -team. They were part of the B team. At age 10, they came to Peter and Andrew and James and John and said, yeah, um, listen, this has been fun, but why don't you guys go on home? Because dad's going to take you fishing. And they learned from their father the fishing business. Why? Because they were not picked to be part of the A-team. They didn't excel they weren't as educated. They didn't know as much. And they were told, you can go home. They were fishermen. And yet Jesus comes along and he is looking for those who are available. It is your availability that God will use, not your ability. Let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> when Jesus chose to build his squad, right? He chose the B team. So of course they'd want to follow him. Because this rabbi has said, yeah, I'm looking for you. I'm looking for guys like you. Guys maybe with not as much potential. Guys with not as much personal power to persuade, to follow him, to be like him, to know God. He skipped the best of his day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great authors were in Greece. The great philosophers were in Athens. The great and powerful were in Rome. He didn't he didn't choose the politicians. He didn't choose the teachers. He didn't choose the educated. He chose fishermen, and they were first. He's looking for availability. Because the truth is that what God chooses to use from us and what he does through us is not based on our ability, but our availability. And sometimes, sometimes your experience and your ability can get in the way of allowing God to do what he wants to do. God doesn't necessarily call the equipped. He equips the called. He equips the called. And if you are called by him, and may I just venture to say all of us are, he will equip you with what you need. He is looking. Old Testament, in fact, it tells us that the eyes of God roam to and fro through the whole earth looking for those who will put their faith in him, their trust in him, allow him to work through him, because when we allow God to do what he can do in us and through us, he's able to do amazing, exceedingly abundantly, above all that we could ever begin to imagine or dream or think of. That's how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter three. 
He's able to do far more. Paul found this out. Because Paul found that actually in his weakness, God was able to use him. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. My grace is all you need, the Lord told him. My power works best in your weakness. So, Paul said, now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. It is the power of God working in us and through us that makes us pliable, that allows him to work in us and through us to do exceedingly abundantly above all that he could ever, we could ever ask or think. And God wants to do that through each one of you. Why? So that we can make a difference in the lives of others. Here's the second thing. He chooses. He not only looks, he chooses. He chose us. Not the other way around. He chose us, not the other way around. Some of you may think, well, I chose Christ. I chose to follow. And you know what? You did. You, you have a free will. God created that in you. But the truth is, is he chose you long before you ever chose him. I even find it interesting that in the story of the prodigal son, there's so many truths that come from that story and so many messages and series that could be developed from it. But one incredible thing and incredible truth that comes from it is that while the young man who had gone off and wasted, he was B team, right? No, forget that. He was like C, D, and F team. I mean, he had flunked out, failed out. He was in the muck and mire and the mud with the pigs. Bad news. And he decided, my, my father's servants are better. Maybe if I just go back and fall at his feet and apologize. And the Bible says that while he was still far off, you want to know who was looking for him? The father. And before he could even get home, the father had run out to where he was. Phillips Craig and Dean has an awesome song that talks about how the father is running after us. He runs to where we are. He meets you at the point of your need. He chooses you. What did he say to this B team? What did he say to these fishermen? Follow me. If you went to rabbi school, at some point you had to choose a rabbi and go and put yourself at his feet and allow him to test you and allow him to see how much experience and education you had. And then if you were lucky, he would choose you back. But isn't it interesting? Jesus doesn't even wait for them. He just says, you, follow me. He chooses them. And he chose you. He chose you. And while it was nice if you fell at a rabbi's feet and if you'd gone through all those years of education that you were finally selected, and while it was very cool that you could kind of fall back on that knowledge when things got difficult, isn't it even better to know that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords chose you? And when life gets a little difficult, you can fall back on the fact that before you ever chose him, he chose you.
He chose you. Some of you are struggling right now. You're struggling with marriage. You're struggling with your career. You're struggling with parenting. Believe this. If you are Jesus' disciple, he chooses you. He chooses you. You did not choose me, it says in John chapter 15, quoting Jesus. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he will give you. You didn't choose me, I chose you. And it was proven in Matthew chapter 4 when he walks up to Peter and Andrew and James and John. He says, hey guys, follow me. I choose you. Isn't it nice to be chosen? You ever have teams split up when you were younger, remember? You'd have a couple captains and they'd pick teams. You know, I, I got, uh, when I got out of college, we had gotten married and I wasn't playing nearly as much basketball and I wanted to play some more basketball and I couldn't figure out where to play. And, uh, and so somebody said, hey, you should go to the Y. They have open basketball. And the YMCA at that point in time was actually in Wyandotte, not in Southgate. So I went to the Y and sure enough, they had a gym Monday night, open basketball. And I went out and I said, yeah, I'd like to play. Well, they put everybody against the wall and then they picked two guys and they're two guys that have been playing at the Y for, you know, years. And they go out and pick the teams. And you know what they started doing? They started picking the people they knew, picking the people they knew could play. And there I am standing against the wall. I'm a grown man. And I'm standing against the wall waiting to be picked. Never been in this situation before. A lot of times I've picked the teams. Now I get why you don't want to be last. And sure enough, it comes down to the last two guys. And I'm standing against the wall. Dear Lord, please choose me. Please choose me. The guy says, I'll take whoever the other guy is. And the other captain just kind of rolls his eyes. I'll take him. Oh, man. <laughs> don't worry. I had game. By the end of it, they were like, should have picked you first. Yeah, you should have. I don't know if that happened or not. <laughs> Anyways, there's something about being chosen last. Being picked last, being picked because, can I tell you something? If you know Christ, long before you ever picked him, he chose you. He chose you. And I don't care whether you lost an hour of sleep or not. That's reason to get excited. He chose you with all of your baggage, with all of your inability, with all of your wrong turns, with all of your fears and all of your foibles and all of your bad decisions and all the times when you could have made one turn and you chose the wrong way and yet in his love and in his grace and in his mercy, he says, follow me. Follow me. He chose you. The next thing is, he doesn't just look, he doesn't just choose, he calls. He calls. Our primary calling is to be with him. What did he tell them? Follow me. He didn't tell them where they were going. He didn't tell them what their assignment would be. He wasn't even letting them know where they were going to have dinner later on or where they would be eating the next day or where they'd be spending the night. He just said, follow 
me. Be with me. Be with me. I, I have, uh, we are all a unique combination, right, of our parents. And uh, there are a number of areas where people have said, have told me, and where I can actually see, I am like my father. But there are areas in which I am like my mother. One of those areas is that there are times when I can be eating lunch with my wife and actually ask her, now where will we be having dinner? <clears throat> so before I'm done with one meal, I'm looking forward to the next. I want to know what's next on the agenda. Now, sometimes I want to know what's next on the agenda because it might make a difference as to what I have now. That's my mother, especially when she's traveling. She wants to know, now, where are we eating? Those are vitally important aspects of the trip. Where are we, when are we eating? And then when you're having food, now, where will we, eat, we be eating this evening? So we always put mom in charge of, you know, when we were out, especially at a praise gathering or something, mom is the one who did what Bill Gaither told Thousands of people not to do. She would be the one that left early to go get the spot at the restaurant so that we could make sure we could all eat at the same spot. I want to know, don't you? We all kind of like to be in control of that. Yet Jesus comes to these guys who are making a living by fishing and he says, follow me. I'm not going to tell you. And you know what? This really isn't any different from how God has been since the beginning, right? Because he called a guy by the name of Abraham and he said, I want you to leave. Where are we going? Don't worry about that. Just pack it up and let's go. He calls us. What does he call us to? We don't always know. All we know is he has called us to follow him, to be like him, to become like him, to get to know him better. That's what he's called us to. He's called us to relationship. And the truth is, the better we get to know him, the more we want to make a difference for him. To become like him, you've got to know him. To know him, you've got to know his word. To know his word, you've got to put yourself in position to hear from it. We talked about that last week. The importance of hearing from God, hearing from the spirit of God. But you have to put yourself in position to hear from him. You've got to put yourself in position to hear from him. And when you don't, let me ask you this, what happens in any relationship that you have where there is no communication? You're going to find that those relationships slide back. There's just a natural slippage in the traction. You can't keep it where it used to be because it's the same way with God. And that's why, that's why it's so interesting that a lot of us fall back on the word Christian. Because the truth is we can define Christian however we want. But when we actually look at Christ followers and realize that they were disciples, well, we're not really sure we want to go there. So we'll stick with the comfortability of Christian. Because I can handle that. But disciple, I don't know. That means I might have to follow a little closer than I, and Jesus says so many times in so many different ways. Come on, man. Lean in. Get closer. Come to me if you're burdened. Come to me if life is heavy because I will ease your burden. I will help you lift that load. 
He says, seek and you'll find. Knock, the door will be open. Ask, you'll receive. He says, I've come to give them life and life to the full, life more abundant, life more free. That's Jesus. But you got to get to know him. And that's what he calls us to. He calls us to know him. And we have so many outlets for it. So many outlets for it in this day and age and in our culture. And even in our church, we've got no excuse. We have no excuse not to know him better, not to lead into him more. And that's what he's called us to. But here's the thing. He looks, he chooses, he calls, but after that, we have to commit. It says, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. What did they leave? They left the boat. They left the boat. That's, that's kind of us. That's the way we take care of ourselves. That's the way they were taking care of themselves, the boat. The boat was their security, man. The boat was their security. You want me to leave my boat? I can't leave my boat. It's how I make my money. It's how I live. And it says they left their father. Now, can I ask you a question? And don't, you don't have to answer this, all right? Just think about it. But did he actually ask them to leave fishing? Did he ask, actually ask them to leave their father? No. They still had a relationship. He was still dad. In fact, after Jesus is resurrected, you want to know the last thing he did with his disciples before he ascended into heaven? He had a fish dinner. Because you want to know what they were doing? They were out in a boat fishing. They couldn't catch anything, so he pulled the same thing at the end of his earthly relationship with them as he did at the beginning. He said, hey, throw the net on the other side. And at first they're like, throw the net on the other side. And then they're like, wait a second, been here, done that. Why am I remembering something? And they threw it on the other side, and sure enough, they caught so many fish. They brought him in, and there's Jesus. He already had some fish. He was making them for breakfast. No, they still fished. They still had a relationship. In fact, there's a time when Jesus is spending the night at Peter's house. He healed his mother-in-law. Come on, can't be any nicer than that, right? Healing the mother-in-law? That had to raise Peter in his mother-in-law's view. In every marriage, there's always a surprised mother-in-law. <laughs> he, what, what was he asking? He was asking, you got to give me priority. And here's, here's the thing. If we were really to have a come to Jesus moment this morning, if I were to really ask you, I'd like for all of you who have given God number one priority in your life to please stand, don't. Because the bottom line is, if any of us stood, it would be very few. Because there are a lot of things that come in between our relationship with him. And while I would love to think that after a message like today, you would vault Jesus to number one on your list, I'm smart enough to know it's probably not going to happen, but can I tell you something? You are wise if you begin to prioritize him 
above the other things in your life because you will find that the other things in your life are better when you give him priority. He would make that call a few times to the, to the rich and famous. He would say, well, have you kept the commandments? Yeah, since I was a kid. Well, here's one thing maybe you should think about. What if you sold everything you have and then come follow me? And the guy's like, what? well, that's okay, see ya. Why? Jesus knew that's where his heart was. It wasn't with Jesus. It was with what he had. For some people, it's relationships that they have here on this earth. That's where our heart is. God says, I want your heart. There's got to be some commitment. That's why there's a difference between Christian and disciple. God says, I want your, your heart to follow Jesus. He's got to take precedence. Most of you are not going to lose a mother, a father over a relationship with Jesus. However, do you understand, you do understand, right, that there are people in different countries in this world right now who live without a family. Why? Because they chose Christ. And in choosing Christ, they lost their family. In choosing Christ, they lost their living. They lost their livelihood. That's what it cost them. What does following Christ cost you? What does it cost you? There has to be a commitment level to following Christ. And here's where it really meets the road because the last point that we make today is he commands. He commands. It's interesting that he said to them, follow me. But then he had something else to add to it. He said, I will make you fish for people. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. Following Jesus means that, that everything in our lives is subject to his lordship. He has authority over it all. And just like he was a fisher of men, this rabbi would make those who followed him fishers of men. That's the first thing he said. Follow me, we're going to fish for people. That was first. That was foremost. I want you to fish for people. Follow me, I'm going to show you how. I'm going to show you what it takes. I'm going to show you a different way of doing things. We're going to do things in love. We're not going to add to people's burden. We're going to try to take it away. Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And he says, if you are my follower, you will fish for people. Now, some of you could say, well, that's not the way I see it. You see it wrong. And if I don't preach that to you, if I don't teach that to you, if I don't share that with you, then I'm wrong. You can be a Christian and define it any way you want. 
But if you are a disciple and a follower of Christ, then he says one of the ways you're going to prove that you are my follower is you're going to endeavor to get other people to follow me. And we could say, well, you know, I really think there's a lot of ways to God and whatever people choose, and that's fine, but then you don't believe what you say you believe because the Bible says Jesus said in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. And you could claim that and say, yeah, that's what I believe, but yet there are people all around you who do not know Jesus. And here's the sad truth. We don't care. We don't care. And if we do care, then some of you would say, well, yeah, I got those people, but I thought that was your job as you point to the stage. The problem is I'm never going to meet those people. But you will, and you're a follower of Jesus. So what did he say to his disciples? Last thing he says to them as he ascends into heaven, Matthew chapter 28, he says, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he adds something to it. And here's the deal. I'm with you everywhere you go. What was he saying? You don't have to do this by yourself. I know I've been here on the earth with you guys and we've done it together. It's been awesome, but I'm going to send my spirit to be with you so that wherever you go in all of the world, I'm going to be with you. I'm part of this process right to the end of the age. So here's the question. God maybe didn't choose you to change the world for everyone. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you, he is choosing you to change the world for someone. Who's your one? Who's your one? I want to I read something to you, and the reason I want to read it to you is because I don't want to miss any of it. It's an illustration that was actually read to us. Well, this guy actually shared it. He knew it. But it was shared with us at a, at a conference in Illinois that uh, the Southern Baptist invited leadership from Midwest churches and associations to be part of. And in the first message... The gentleman that shared said, let me tell you a story. And this is the story that he shared. Let me share it with you and see, see if you can relate. Once, there was a group of fishermen living near a lake teeming with fish, and the fish were hungry. Week after week, the group met to talk about their call to fish, its abundance, and how they might go about fishing. They carefully defined what fishing means and declared that it will always be their primary task. They searched for new and better methods of fishing. They sponsored special meetings called the Month for Fishermen to Fish. They built large, beautiful buildings and called them fishing headquarters. They loved slogans such as, fishing is the task of every fisherman. There was one thing, however, they failed to do. They didn't fish. 
they organized a board that sent out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. They hired staffs and appointed committees that held many more meetings. They sponsored costly nationwide and worldwide conferences to debate, promote, and hear all about the ways of fishing, such as new fishing equipment or baits. But the staff and the committee members did not fish. They built large, elaborate, and expensive training centers where the original primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Over the years, these centers offered courses on the needs of fish, the nature of the fish, where to find the fish, and how to approach and feed the fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishing. But the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. Now it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. And they received ridicule of some who made fun of the fishermen's clubs. Imagine how hurt some were when one day a person suggested that those who don't catch fish were really not fishermen. No matter how much they claimed to be. Is a person a fisherman if year after year he never catches a fish? Another way to put it is, is one following if one doesn't fish? Can we really be called followers of Christ if we never fish. Never fish. So here's the deal. Whether we like it or not, and this is a tough one. So I hope you've been here in these past few weeks where we've talked about how wonderful we all are and how God loves us and incredible. But here's the deal. The method that God chose to change the world was you. We're the method. And we need to do a better job of fishing. And, and, and here's the thing. I'm not asking you to go out and fill a boatload full of fish. I, I mean, if you can pull that off, that would be awesome. Do it. And God sometimes allows that to happen. But but could you catch one fish? Is there one person that God would bring to your mind and lay on your heart? They need, they need to know Jesus. And what if the only way that happens is through you? Like it or not, we're his method. We're his method. And the problem is we can go through our whole Christian lives and never really, it's almost like we don't give it a thought that being a true follower of Christ means we're going to fish. So the idea of this series as we head into Easter is, is not that you'd worry about catching a whole bunch of fish, but how about one? 
Is there one person that you could begin to pray for that God would lay on your heart and you would begin to pray for them and you would begin to pray that God would use you and you would begin to pray for the opportunity that God would give you, if not to share with them, then to at least invite them. Because here comes Easter. And if you talk about the number one or number two opportunity that we have in this country, in this culture, to invite people in, it's this time of year. And there are a number of different opportunities that we have to make a difference. And in each one of those opportunities, we're going to give people a chance to accept Christ as their personal Savior and know what it means to be His follower. So the question is, who's your one? Who's your one? As you leave today, I want to ask the ushers to have in the back, there's a crate full of little booklets. They are devotional prayer journals. Now, here, and I'm just using this as an illustration because some of you, this would not be the illustration. You need me to use another place, McDonald's, Tim Hortons, whatever, but Starbucks. If you go to Starbucks and you order a coffee and you pay for it and you wait for them to make it and you get it and you leave, that's about the same time period that it will take you to read through that journal on a daily basis. I'm asking you to take one and in the course of this next week, pray and ask God to lay on your heart the person that he wants you to fish for. And we're going to, for the next few weeks, we're going to join with you in praying. Praying that God will bring that person to mind. Praying that God will intersect your lives with them. Praying for the opportunity you have to either talk with them or invite them at the very least to come and be with us. And can you imagine what would happen if a church full of people decided, you know what? I'm a follower. I'm going to fish. And if Jesus meant what he said, that he's going to be with you through the process, imagine what could happen in your life, in the life of our church, but even more, what could happen in their lives. Make sure that as you leave, you, you take that little booklet. Take it with you. Start tomorrow. And let's begin praying for God to make us fishers of men. Fishers of people. There's a purpose for us being here. And he wants to see that happen in our lives. Bow your heads together with me in prayer.